You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, as always, except sometimes... Is Paul Doroshenko. Hello, how are you doing? I'm <laughs> all right, how are you? Uh, never a dull moment. No, the big news this week has been the findings of the ethics commissioner in the Justin Trudeau, Jody Wilson-Raybould, SNC-Lavalin interference with prosecutorial discretion affair. Um, and There's I thought, been other big news this week, but that's big news, but how is it related to driving? I'm going to tell you how, but why don't you give us a little recap on what the findings of the ethics commissioner were, because they're important to why I'm going to tell you why it's about driving law. Oh, I didn't know I had to give a summary. Well, I mean, of course, we had um, everybody testify in front of the Senate um, and, or the uh, House of Commons, I guess, with respect to what took place in the SNC-Lavalin affair. Did the PMO put pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould to put pressure on the person who was making the decision in SNC to make the determination as to whether or not it would be a deferred prosecution. And um, Jody Wilson-Raybould and the, uh, her subordinate stood their ground uh, and uh, everybody testified and it didn't seem like a whole lot of pressure to me. But the question was still uh, unresolved. Was it an ethical lapse on behalf of the Prime Minister? In fact, is there a piece of legislation, does this piece of legislation that governs uh, the ethical um, ethical uh, steps and concerns and um, positions of, of people in government who are elected representatives um, vis-a-vis uh, interests, other interests that might um, um, infringe. And so there was an ethics investigation and ultimately poor old Justin Trudeau was found to have sort of badly, I think, badly. violated the uh, uh, the piece of legislation. It's an ethics violation. And uh, the uh, conclusion on the summary that I read was that um, it... Uh, he certainly had an interest in the outcome of it for his constituents, SNC-Lavalin, that, the, um, that the, on the face of it, it would appear to have been a uh, conflict of interest for him to be um, pressuring. And of course, he's the prime minister yet, so it's not like just being an MP. So don't pressure prosecutors unless you're a defense lawyer, in which case it's kind of your job. Um, if you're the boss of a prosecutor... Don't pressure the prosecutors if you're the boss of all the prosecutors. Well, that's the thing. So it's the uh, her boss pressuring yeah. her to make a decision uh, on um, something that shouldn't really be a political decision at all. And that has been the concern from the beginning. I mean, my take on it always has been that it wasn't a whole lot of pressure. Um, and that, you know, we put more pressure on prosecutors than... Yeah, pro- and prosecutors sometimes put more pressure on me than... Then, uh, then yeah, but that's that. part of the adversarial system. that's part system. of our job. But, of course, he is her boss. Yeah. And so I'm going to tell you why this relates to driving law. 
I know that was a long explanation. I'm sorry I wasn't faster with it. People are patient interested with me. in SNC Lavalin or patient with you, one or the other, <laughs> or both. Um, and I'm going to tell you why by telling you a story of something I saw at a traffic court earlier this week. And it involved an officer, a junior officer, and a sergeant. And I'm not going to name names or name where. Um, junior officer was speaking to a self-represented disputant and explaining that they had exercised roadside discretion. The self-represented disputant had been uh, caught speeding in a school zone and the officer roadside had instead of issuing them the ticket for speeding in a school zone which is three points and a $267 fine instead they issued them a ticket for disobey traffic control device which is for like violating any sign signal traffic control device erected by municipality reserve government etc etc um, disobey traffic control device, which is $121 fine and two points. So it's less significant. But it's covered. Like it's, it's covered. It's still the yeah. offense. You're, uh, disobe you're still disobeying a traffic control yeah. device a if you're speeding. A school zone sign falls within the definition of traffic control device. See, the reason I asked that is because I remember there was a police officer who was like, well, I'll give you one of these and one of these instead of giving you a cell phone ticket. And that officer got in some real trouble. Yes, but that was, I think, a seatbelt ticket when the person was wearing their seatbelt. It just wasn't an offense that was captured. And in fact... They were using their cell phone or something and he said, well, I'll tell you what, instead I'll give you a seatbelt ticket. Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, later that day, I attended a different traffic court to deal with a different um, speeding ticket, uh, and it was resolved in that manner with a plea to disobey traffic, traffic control, control device. device. Yeah. There was another two charges that were dropped, and the officer uh, went to amend the ticket to do that, and the JP said, Miss Lee, I'd just prefer when you when you resolve them this way, if you just make an application to plead guilty to the lesser included. So, Rather than amend the ticket. Yes. So she so that's considered also, yeah, and it why not? a lesser included. Why because not? it is. Why not? Rather than amend it's the ticket. It's included and it's lesser. Yeah. So, fine. I don't know why we don't do that more often. I don't know why either. But it's, I mean, the decision to, what you're tying back to is that yes. other officer's decision to give a ticket for disobey traffic control device instead of speed in a playground zone. Which was within their discretion to do. Exercising now, that officer's discretion. This guy, this self-represented person, had disputed the ticket, gone to traffic court, and was trying to get a further break. I think they didn't Hell want... Hell with him. Well, yes, I agree, but I, I'm telling you the narrative here. They didn't want any points. And as the discussion is going on, I see the sergeant hear it. I can see him tune into what's happening. And he walks over there, and he's a very large person. He's quite... I think I know who cuts, you're talking cuts about. Cuts quite yeah. a figure. You'd um, be threatening. You'd be, you might oh yeah. be a little bit scared being pulled over by him. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and he says, excuse me, I just need to speak to this officer. Takes the young officer down the hallway... And everybody can hear, because he's speaking so loudly to her, saying, you cannot write that ticket. You are not allowed to write that ticket. You have to write the ticket for the offense that he committed. There's no breaks. There's no discretion. You have to write the school zone ticket and nothing else. And if you don't, you have to drop this ticket. And if you've done any others, you have to cancel them all. Which, you know, great for the guy, but 
not great when the next thing he said was, I've issued a directive to all members in our unit. Well, even there. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep. He's the Justin Trudeau, and she's the, the Jody Wilson-Raybould. She's the jo Jody Wilson-Raybould, yes. I've issued a directive to all members in our unit that there's going to be no more of this. Too often people come and they plead to something lesser. No more of that. There's none of that. It's prosecuted as it's charged. Well, that's just wrong. And we're back to... We're back to what Justin Trudeau did that was wrong. But there's a specific piece of legislation that governs the ethical considerations with respect to members of parliament. Yes. There's and, also a specific piece of And that of is because they have a potential conflict of interest. This isn't a conflict of interest, but this is prosecutorial discretion. Yes. It's still wrong. The officer is acting in their role as Crown. And at common law, the, it is well recognized that Crown has very broad amounts of discretion with respect to how to proceed with a prosecution. Um, whether or not to accept a plea to a lesser offense, whether or not to stay a charge. And that's not a discretion that's exercised by the head crown. That's discretion exercised by the crown handling the file. At best, they might have to explain their decision-making process. But yeah. you're, I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a barrister there in court, and you're handling the file, and you're making the decision, assuming that you're using good judgment. Yeah. And if you're a police officer, you're a police officer there in court, and you're making the decision, and everybody's assuming that you're using good judgment. Yep. And the other thing is, there are provisions of both the Provincial Police Act and the Federal RCMP Act that prohibit uses of your superiority to force lower ranking members to do something that they don't want to do. Obviously, you can't defy an order because, um, you know, paramilitary organization, but you also can't use intimidation to direct somebody to do something that is within their discretion to do. Well, it's clearly, I mean, I've taken this position many times before, and I've talked to lots of more senior officers who have also taken the position that this is prosecutorial discretion. They are exercising their discretion on the basis of whatever reasons. Their reasons can be looking at the court list. Their reasons can be looking at the person's driving record. Their reasons can be uh, that they know that there's, you know, some aspect of their case they're not enthusiastic about or something that that uh, could be problematic, and they're willing to do something. Mm -hmm. Um you know, they're entitled to have their reasons. They don't have to tell me all of their reasons. Um, sometimes it's nice when they do tell you, well, you know what, I was not pleased with this. You know, I felt sorry for the person as a result of this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's informative Technically, the Technically, they, they committed the offense, but this was, a you know, something that slightly would have misled them. Um, you know, that's, a, that's something that they have to be entitled to do. Um, and there's been instruction many times from the Supreme Court of Canada about this. Yeah, but apparently in traffic court, and this isn't just in this instance. Well, I have seen this before. I've seen it in other courts. And I think that these officers, these sergeants and corporals and white shirts, whatever their ranks are, um, superintendents who are directing officers on how to resolve their tickets and what please. Better think about Justin Trudeau. They're, ju they're a bunch they of Justin. They're a bunch Trudeau. of Justin Trudeaus. Do they want to get voted out? Yeah. Anyway, so that's how SNC-Lavalin kind of relates to driving law. Bringing it right back to traffic court, Kyla Lee. Yep, taking the biggest scandal in Canadian law right now and bringing it back to the lowest level of court in the province. 
Nothing wrong with that. No. And you could say that there's lower levels of court when you start talking about tribunals. They're not courts. Hmm. I know. So they're lower than a court. All right. So moving on from that with no nice planned segue here, uh, I wanted to talk about Lyft. Oh. Because Lyft has announced that they are going to be engaging in operations in British Columbia. I love it. The chess game that the uh, NDP we played. We do it. And then other people step up like Cater and go, fine, we'll fill the gap. Yeah. No, I mean, for sure. The... the um... I, I think you can you can put the boots to these companies because they know that they want to be here. They want to get part of that market. They want to get yeah. part of that market as quickly as possible because all of the people here are going to certainly adopt that. Um, people will certainly consider that they've got to get a class four license and go through those steps in order to do it. There's lots of people who probably have full-time jobs who plan on driving part-time at night. I considered it. I'm sure you did. Just you because I, you see a you see like, a oh. you see a job wanted at uh, at yeah, Subway, and you're always thinking, oh, you know, I could they, fit in like ten hours. They a week. need help. Yeah, yeah. I always like making subs. I remember working like retail. I like the, you know, I kind of feel like have you ever seen American Beauty? Uh, a long time. I mean, I know Kevin Spacey's like bad man now, but American Beauty was a good film, and I I just really. It always resonated with me the moment he quit his job and then went and got got another job at a hamburger place and was like, I'm looking for the lowest level of responsibility possible. I, I still would, you know, I'm always jealous of the people working at Home Depot because, yeah. you know, if I could just work in like the plumbing or the hardware department of Home Depot, you know, I probably would be quite contented. I have memories of knowing everything there was to know about every pen that was for sale at Staples. Well, I worked at Canadian Tire for years and I knew all the product numbers of the bicycles and then I moved into the automotive department and I knew all the product numbers of spark plugs. Well, um, there you go. That's a useful skill. Bikes start with 71. <laughs> I still remember that. At least I still use Christmas pens. starts with 51. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, Lyft has caved. They're, they're going to do it. So Uber caved, then Lyft caved. They've all caved. Well, Uber hasn't caved yet. Yeah, Lyft they have. Caved. Yep. Oh, they, they since Uber that? Uber already caved. Well, good on the NDP. Uber has to cave, though, because Uber is losing millions. Billions. 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 Well, I mean, they're just going to have to uh, charge more. But I don't want to pay more when I take an Uber. Paul. Well, they're going to have to charge more and start making some money and maybe pay their pay their drivers a little well, bit Well, this better. is the problem. I, and but this, it's like, it's the, the reason real... they're losing money is because all of these various jurisdictions are making determinations, legal determinations that the drivers are not contractors, but employees. And then they're entitled to minimum wage and benefits and holiday pay and all these things that Uber in its business model never accounted for. And now it's like, oh shit, where do we get the money? Well, they, they, they have the capacity to raise the prices with probably a mouse click. Yes. Um, and it's called surge pricing. The issue, they however. They do it every day. Well, I mean, they can do it all the time. But they can probably change their basic, you know, rate and bring that up, um, bring the whole thing up by 2% or something like that. The issue is, however, you know, it's a competitive market and the other people are, are looking at it and people will start going to the different one. And that's the, the issue of uh, something that you can shop around with so easily on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you end up with razor thin margins. Yep. If I don't like the Amazon price did not make money Uber, for years. I, if I don't like the price of the Uber, I can log into Lyft mm. and see how much I can get a Lyft for. And if I don't like the price of the Lyft, 
in BC, I can log into Cater and see if I can get a Cater for cheaper. We'll see if Cater can survive. I mean, is I it going to be Uber, a race Uber to the and, bottom, though, well, for prices? Uber and Lyft, I mean, they've got enough money from investors and, you know, they do have the money coming in uh, that they can uh, they can lower the prices to crush Cater. We have... But of course, there's right now like 10, <laughs> 10 uh, services that are available to people who who can read Chinese and download the app if you're in Richmond. Yes. Apparently $20 million a year 20 of million. Uh, revenue being generated by these illegal ride shares. I know. I mean, I'm tempted to start an illegal ride share. Yeah. After I'm... you shift at Subway. Yeah. Well, I could run the illegal ride share while I'm working my Subway shift because I'd be running it on my phone. Oh, see, I was thinking of driving. Oh, no, no, no. You run the company because you're taking in the money. And then you do the same thing the cannabis companies did. You're like, I'm providing a service for an under uh, underrepresented market because taxis suck. Um, it's not the taxis suck, but the availability of taxis and the extreme you restrictions on taxis You say you only pick up people suck. with sore feet. Yeah. And we're helping provide a service because people who have needs to get to hospitals and medical reasons that they can't drive or take the bus uh, have unavailability of taxis. And it's more um, simple to provide services for people with guide dogs and wheelchairs and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, it's like a uh, like a an Allard type challenge and um, folk hero and then convert the business into a legal business once legalization of Uber comes in. Have we exhausted this topic? No. Um, what do you want to talk you, about? You cut about me this off. Topic? There's still a bunch of unanswered questions about how this whole Uber Lyft Cater thing is going to work. Well, I'm wondering about the insurance. I'm still wondering about ICBC insurance because Cater is being run right now by taxi companies, right? So they're just taxis. Yeah. Um, but insurance is a huge one. Like, what do you have to buy for your insurance? <clears throat> that's the thing that's got me from going and getting class four license. You're not driving for Uber or Lyft. Well, just a couple, like if I'm on my way to court and I can just pick someone up on the way. Forget it. <laughs> You're out of your mind. Um, the, uh, no, but what insurance you have to have, but also are they going to put the same type of restrictions they have on taxis? Like you can't pick up passengers outside your particular zone because that's what's choking the market. I think. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, I still want to see how they're going to handle it at the airport. Are there going to be caps on the number of, of vehicles you can have? Like yeah. how many people are allowed to be licensed in this? Or is it just anyone with a class four free-for-all? Well, I think it's anyone with a class four free-for-all, but how many vehicles they can have, that's still subject to legislation. I don't know, or regulation. I don't know that they've done any of that. I, I, Maybe they nice. have. Maybe it, they have. You know, they said this is going to be ready to go by September. Well, we're oh. two weeks away from that. It well, would they, be nice to know what the regulations are going to be. pass a regulation in 25 minutes if they want. Yeah, I know, but that's not the point. The point is that it would be nice to know what the regulations would be. Yeah, I, they may have already drafted it and made it be published and we don't even know about it. We're not looking it up right now, are we? No. Well, there you go. I think you just want the class four license because you're just like, want to make sure that you've got a class four license, just like yeah. you have your handgun license and you're never going to own a handgun. Well, yeah, but what if I want to get a handgun one day? Uh, you're not going to get a handgun. But what if I want to? <laughs> <laughs> what if one there day I wake up and, and I decide... you want to drive an Uber with a handgun. <laughs> yeah. No thanks. You cannot do that, no. by the way. That's illegal. Yeah. Um, well, actually, you could probably do it in many states in the U.S. Yes. Wyoming. Um, <laughs> so unrelated to any of that, Paul, is some very interesting statistics that came out uh, earlier this week about impaired driving in British Columbia. Came out as a result of some tweets that you had. Not me. 
well, they were follow-up tweets, you and me. There was, there was so, what happened was there's been some publications, newspapers and stuff, things on the inter, interwebs, um, talking about how much impaired driving uh, infractions, how many impaired driving infractions have been in Vancouver and Delta this year. So and many more than last year. Apparently a lot more, and we know that too. Um, and then VPD said, oh, but you know, it's because we put more officers into our counterattack roadblocks this summer. Which purely means that the numbers are all about enforcement. Or, but no, they didn't, didn't you see they were questioned on that? So Jason Robillard, who's their media spokesperson, um, was questioned about the number of people this year compared to last year. And he's like, oh, we don't actually keep track of that. So how can you say, if you have no stats on who was working roadblocks and how many people were working roadblocks this year versus last year, that it's just because of more enforcement? Well, we talked about that before, many times before, not on this podcast, but over the years in, in on radio interviews and things like that, that the numbers come down more to enforcement than anything. I mean, you can just get out there, set up a roadblock, and you will catch some people who are drinking and driving who are over 80 milligrams. You will. Sure. Um, you set up... Set it up anywhere. Set up 10 roadblocks, and you're going to catch some more people. Uh, a lot of them might be tooling down the road and, and look just fine, and they're driving. And I mean, they don't realize. You and I were in the car together the other day, and we looked over. There's some person who stopped to let somebody turn right, and then we drove past them in a Jeep. And Oh, yeah, she was said, wasted. Yeah, you said, thought she was wasted. Yeah. I didn't get a look. Anyway, the, um, the, uh, it really comes down to enforcement. And those numbers though, that were sent to us, I mean, so first of all, back up a little bit, um, you know, we argued that, well, clearly impaired driving hasn't declined as a result of the IRP scheme and the government, you know, still says that the IRP scheme has had a huge impact on impaired driving. I maintained, I maintained from the beginning that it was the discussion about the IRP scheme, if anything, um, that, uh, that did it. And half of the discussion was frankly, me and Kyla talking about deficiencies of the IRP scheme. Well, also last summer, how much media attention was being paid to changes in impaired driving laws because they were due to come in in six months and exactly. the Federal cannabis ones. had so just that was been just an issue. on the verge of legalization. New laws had been passed. It was all a big. You can, you can probably go month to month and look at when there's a big bunch of news stories about harsher impaired driving laws for probably the four month period after that, uh, there's a lower rate of impaired driving. And then after that, it starts to get back to the historic norm. This is a social, like a, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? A social something phenomenon, um, social science phenomenon known as announcement effect. I didn't know that's what it's called, but I know that I've read, um, articles in the past about, um, discussions about enforcement changing people's behavior when it came to uh, impaired driving and yeah. just driving generally. The announcing changes in the law or a higher risk of apprehension or, or just announcing laws in relation to something that already exists and making people have a discussion about them will deter more people from breaking the law. And it's due to the increased perception that you are likely to get caught because you're thinking about it. It's at the forefront of your mind. Um, as soon as that discussion fades away, you don't have it at the forefront of your mind. You go out, you split a pitcher of sangria with your girlfriend over lunch, and all of a sudden... You're that person driving that Jeep yesterday, the yeah. other day. Um, I mean, she, she had the whole picture to herself. <laughs> Probably. 
Um, I didn't get a good look at her. I just saw the driving behavior, but we were off in traffic after that. Um, yeah, no, it, it's been it's been studied. We know that it exists. We've seen it ourselves because of the significant decline when the IRP scheme was all over the news, mm-hmm. including when the IRP scheme was struck down, not being enforced. Or even look at the statistics. <laughs> the fewest deaths on the road when the IRP scheme wasn't being used because it was found unconstitutional. Even the statistics, though, in relation to impaired driving numbers, like alcohol-impaired driving numbers in December, this year were much lower than previous years. Why? Well, brand new law came into effect and it was all Discussed that people everywhere. could talk about. Yeah. So there's no doubt about that. Now, the interesting thing, um, so there's a few points there. One, impaired driving has not, we've seen no decline. It really comes down to enforcement and the numbers really reflect enforcement. You could probably double the numbers if you doubled the enforcement. Um, Number two, um, the, uh, so so all the statistics are highly questionable. Um, But the other thing that came out of those statistics that were emailed to us, they were a year old. Um, but that was with respect to uh, approved screening device refusal cases. So approved screening device refusals are where a person um, either just says, no, fuck it, I'm not blowing, or they say, um, or they say, okay, yeah, I'll blow, and then they, you know, partially blow, or or they can't blow. They legitimately can't provide a sample. Now, of course, every time, I've never had a case where the officer said, you know what, I, I really think you can't provide a sample. So, you know, will, I'll just though, give you a 24-hour driving privilege. I know you say this, but I, I will shout out to Grant Gokatru because when he was oh, he's, working, he did that. He, he did do that more than once. He'd tell me, he'd be like, oh yeah, I just canceled an IRP for a lady because uh, she sent me proof of the fact that she has COPD. So turns out it wasn't a legitimate refusal and my guy got rid of it for her. Well, that's uh, probably the only time that it's ever happened and yeah. probably the only, <laughs> and there's lots of people with all sorts of legitimate issues and blowing them and blowing into an approved screening device is not easy. I've had people in the office, staff members of the office, when we've been just around demonstrating them or talking about them, mm-hmm. who get so nervous that they have trouble blowing. Well, what was it? They a, get it, shortness of breath or what have you. A couple of weeks ago, I was blowing into it just to test something. I drank something or ate something and I wanted to see if it produced a result and it took me like three tries. And I mean, I, I can't even count how many times I've blown into an Alcosensor FST. Well, I know. I, it's Well, and then of course there's the two famous YouTube videos. There's the one of me trying to blow into an Alcosensor yep. FST and it just not taking the sample and you pulled out yeah, your phone. Yeah, and you were good and drunk then. Yeah, it was like, like a <laughs> Christmas party, but I knew how to blow and I was blowing just fine, but and it was not walking. showing anything. Um, and then there was the time at uh, Nizer Shijani's house when we were doing some testing and the Alcosensor 4, you were testing the calibration on it, I think, or something. We were blowing... Testing yourself for zero. Something through simulators. Yeah, no, I think... I don't, yeah, maybe it wasn't a mouth alcohol one. Cause we did that at his old house. This yeah. was at his new house, but the, um, you were blowing into it and blowing perfectly fine and no plus signs. It just was like still saying blow, blow, blow. You can find probably both of those videos on YouTube. You look for Kyla's refusal. It'll probably come up for that one. I don't know about mine, but the point that I wanted to get back to was the statistics. So, uh, as a result of, uh, a number of reasons, but, um, I won't go into our angle on it, but there were problems with the Alcosensor 4, the old approved screening device. And it was a particular problem with 2,500 of them that they bought in the summer of 2010. They had 
significant uh, regular problems with a connection from one chip in the device to the motherboard. So they were all replaced in the winter, early winter of 2015. And when they also replaced them in Alberta, they replaced the um, Intoxilizer 400D, which was their former approved screening device with AlcoSensor 4s. Lawyers from Alberta were calling me and saying, hey man, we're getting a lot more refusals now. We didn't get refusals before. We're getting all these refusals. And I noticed too, the Alcosensor FST came out and we were getting refusals. And I chalked it up to the fact that there's no manual button on there, which is why all of these elderly people keep getting IRPs and the IRPs keep getting upheld. Um, but uh, refusals went up, I think, by about 25%. That's a lot. That's a huge number. And it can only be explained. And I would say, I will say that that has been consistent with what I've seen come across my desk this summer. Yeah. A lot of constructive refusals. Yeah. And it leaves you with one conclusion and one conclusion only. I mean, I, of the previous group, I felt that 25 to 50% are innocent, but I can only conclude that this 25% are all innocent. They would be able to provide a sample on an Alco Sensor 4. Also an Alco Sensor 4 had a manual button where the police officer could capture a sample. So it's people ending up with IRPs being punished despite the fact they're innocent because of a choice that the police in British Columbia made to pick a certain device. And that is absolutely, in my mind, reprehensible. I wonder if on that device, and I don't know how we would figure this out other than getting a bunch of maintenance records, but then it's barely ever looked at, if like when it goes for annual service, are they checking the flow rate and volume detectors and recalibrating those? And is there a trend with these that after a certain period of time, the the um, the mechanics of the device, for lack of a better word, you'd know the right words for that, um, the mechanics of the device that allow it to automatically capture a sample once the certain flow rate and flow volume requirements have been met, lose their ability to accurately measure that at a higher rate than other breath testing equipment? Well, problems with the flow meter. Flow uh, meter, that's the yeah, one. <laughs> are, are, you know. It's late in the day. <laughs> you have no idea, right? You have no idea whether or not it's. It's not checked no. during like a calibration test. They don't check the flow meter. They, well, often, the officer will blow a sample into the device often during the calibration test, but you have an officer standing in a, uh, office at the detachment that's probably 22 degrees Celsius. They're not under any pressure or stress. They get as many times to try as they want. And they're also, you know, generally speaking, most police officers are healthy, physically fit. Uh, I mean, I see some that I wonder if they could still pass the physical, but presumably they can. I don't know. They still have, they have weight rooms and things like that. Yeah, and... they're healthy, physically fit people. Um, not it's not like a control that reflects the realities of roadside. Well, they don't have a, a separate device either to test the flow meter. No. So it's only when it goes in for its annual service that any... any but I'm just saying like if you're... If there a, is a test, and if, I don't even know if there is, but remember... I'm saying if you're a 180-pound police officer that works out all the time and you're doing the calibration checks, you can probably produce a longer sustained breath than... Maybe a 68 year old person, or, uh, or like a 23 year old who, you know, parties and doesn't, doesn't work out. 
or me, <laughs> 33 year old. Works in the body shop, sanding cars all day. Sits at a desk or stands in a courtroom all day. Well, back to the point though, which was there is a consistent 25% higher uh, as a result, as a uh, marked on the date basically from the time that the Alco Sensor FST came in, which leads me to the conclusion that there are at least 25% of people who are blowing, who, you know, forgetting the previous number of people who are innocent who are just plain innocent. And that's frustrating. Um, it's interesting to have the control group. I'd like to see somebody study it. Um, the Alco Sensor 4 had a manual button, but I never saw it used. So, you know, I think that was their justification for getting rid of the manual button on the FST. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when you look at that, those numbers, the idea that the superintendent, going back to the most recent challenge to the IRP scheme, the superintendent and the attorney general put their significant reliance in court on the statistical evidence that the success rate was still around 25 to 30 percent. But if you consider that there's been a 25 percent increase in the number of refusals and no corresponding increase in the success rate that is discernible or has been announced, there's actually been a decline in the overall success rate and a decline in the fairness of the scheme. That concerns me greatly. It really concerns me with respect to refusals. Yeah. It's one thing to have a fail and then, you know, another person blew a fail 15 minutes, 10 minutes later or something like that uh, on two different devices and, you know, both calibrated in a reasonably recent period of time. It's another thing entirely to have somebody who tries to blow, tries to blow. I mean, I've had a number of refusal cases where we've had every status message mm -hmm. possible and you're thinking to yourself, well, how are you going to get the sweet spot if you're a person who has a breathing problem? It's but either also, too hard, like, like if somebody's blowing too soft and you think they're legitimately trying to make it difficult to obfuscate and, and refuse, and then the next thing you know, they're blowing too hard, you've got to be thinking, and they've indicated to you that there's a breathing problem, you've got to be thinking to yourself, like, how would they know that they're going to screw up the test by blowing too hard. It's Goldilocks and the three blows. Exactly. We've exhausted that topic. Let's move on to the next one. Well, it is time for our ridiculous driver of the week. Oh my God. My <laughs> God. Well, we, this wait, was a debate. Wait, this was a debate wait, this wait. week. Thank you to Derek Lewers for tagging me in the video of this on Twitter. Oh, for sure. Yes. Thanks, Derek. Critical thinking. Um, because I had not seen this or heard about it and Holy boy, does it warrant discussion. So if you want to watch it, you can go to at Critical Thinking on Twitter and find Derek Lewers's, uh tweet with the video. Uh, Paul, describe what you saw. Kyla just showed it to me before we came in and I'm still, I mean, it, it woke me up at the end of the <laughs> yeah, day and I'm usually quite tired. Here I didn't drink much coffee today. Um, it woke me up, that's for sure. So we've got a police officer at some event on a police motorcycle yep, and he's bike. nose to nose with a civilian on some sort of civilian bike yep. and they're doing some sort of stunt spinning their wheels maybe their wheels are pushing they're each touching, other yeah, but they're maybe pushing, they're so they also holding stationary. their front brakes on but i don't think so i think they're actually just trying a like a, a, a stunt a stunt of pushing each other deliberately um, spinning your tire is stunting as defined in the motor vehicle yeah. act on a government rcmp very expensive, equipped for full police work, mm -hmm. your tax money at work 
to Motorcycle. repair that tire as they're wearing it down by rubbing it against the ground. I'm not enthusiastic about the smoke created either, but in any event, then they lose control. Yes. And the officer goes off to the right and collides with another, another guy. RCMP officer. No, he's was a, it? another no. civilian. Oh, okay, another on a civilian. Bike. Yeah. And RCMP officer tumbles forward. The civilian on the bike, his bike goes into the crowd of people that are at the event. And uh, thankfully he's uninjured, but the, uh, the bike hit the cameraman filming the video. Ridiculous. Un, un, un. What are... I want to say unbelievable, but then I have to say entirely believable. I mean, I had a, okay, I had a, a case recently where there was video and the officer came up to my client's window and the first thing out of his mouth was, what were you thinking? And that's what I want to say to this officer. What were you thinking? It is so dangerous. It's in fact potentially dangerous driving to drive like that in a crowd of people where if you lost control, your bike, if it had hit a child, you could have killed a child. If it had an elderly person, you could have killed an elderly person. You could have caused serious harm to multiple people in that crowd to show off what? That you could remain stationary while spinning your tire? Cool. Or that you can push the other bike back. I know. Like, I mean, cool, you could do a motorcycle trick. Well, it's different from like these officers doing their their special rides yeah, and things like that. Team, the drill team doing their pattern ride. I mean, they're and they doing practice. it. practice. Sure. And they're, they're, they may be on a roadway, but they're not doing it for like a stunting purpose. They're not doing, it's not a dangerous driving thing. They practice, they make sure they're good. Unfortunately, there was an accident this year and that was very sad. That's um, awful. I hope uh, that officer's recovering well, but this was like stunting on a roadway in a manner that's dangerous to the public. And yeah. one wonders what where's, happened out of that. When, yeah, where's when did the it IIO? When did it happen? This was like this past weekend, I think. You know, I, 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 we have so many friends who are police officers, um, as a result of talking to all these officers in traffic court. And I hate to see officers get into trouble for something that seemed like a good idea, but was actually a stupid idea. But I have to say that's probably going to trigger some disciplinary action. It, I, I. Have to and say it, it, and it should, could, and it could trigger a dangerous driving. Yeah, and it and At or at least if, a drive without reasonable consideration. Well, I was just thinking um, there could be some prosecutorial discretion exercised, and it could be driving without due care and attention to others because there are others there. Reasonable consideration or reasonable consideration to others. Yeah, but to I don't know. I just you're also. You know, as an RCMP officer, you have to balance your need to enggage with the public and have your the enthusiasm. public... Yeah, but also have the public see you in a positive light, which I think was what the explanation was that they were trying to do here. They but, botched that badly because it's, you don't get into a, you don't get into a shoving match, uh, even a fun shoving match with, with no. motorcycles. And also you're essentially showing people tricks you can do that would be unlawful for them to do and unlawful for the other guy that's in front of you spinning his tire against yours to be doing at that point in time, you're effectively promoting unlawful driving behavior. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, um, you could rely on that, uh, video seeing an RCMP officer doing that and saying that I, you know, I concluded on that basis that it was not a violation of the law. Yeah. How can it be a marked departure if a cop does it? It's the same if somebody somebody gives you some information and they're a reliable source that you rely on 
and you do something and what's the phrase we use when you get somebody who client who goes down to ICBC and they say, oh no, your license is fine. Oh, like an officially induced error. Officially induced error. It's almost like an officially induced error. It's almost, except for you can't prove that you sought out advice from that person. No, but it's like the principle of it there. It's the principle. You know, you don't demonstrate unlawful conduct and, you know, your, your job, I think first and foremost as an RCMP officer should be promoting public safety. Now, I would just like to send a message out to all the police officers out there who are listening and there's probably not that many, but there might be some. There's quite a few. I'm actually watching you driving. And I'm watching you driving even when you're in an unmarked car. And I do expect you to stop at stop signs, at red lights when you're turning right. And I I expect you to signal your lane changes because, uh, you know, you are sending a message out to the community. And I don't like it when I see officers throw on their emergency lights just to get through an intersection, then turn them off once they're through, then do it in the next intersection and the next intersection and the next intersection. Well, even Shout out to that VPD officer who did that a couple of weeks ago on Kingsway. Even uh, If I knew who you were. Half the time just to pull over somewhere down the street. Yeah. Get their computer out. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a problem. Uh, and I've noticed it more, I think, in the last little while in Vancouver uh, with the unmarked uh, Dodges um, that I just see more bad driving. And of course, everybody who's beside you can tell that you're a police officer. They know that you're a police officer and they see that. Um, you know, I, I recognize as a lawyer that I don't want to be seen running red lights, mm-hmm. not stopping at stop signs. Um, you know, I know some people will recognize me in my car and I don't want anybody to think that I'm above the law. Exactly. So, um, last thing to wrap up, we've got about two minutes left here, Paul. Um, speaking of wrapping up, this wraps up our, tomorrow wraps up. What? Our month and a bit long experiment of Traffic Court Duty Council. Oh yeah, so we've done Traffic Court Duty Council for a couple of months now. Uh, we'll have to sit down and talk about it before we sort of report back about it, but it's been interesting. I, I We've had people from... Uh, a number of people from our office and people from Kevin Filco's office doing it, um, giving out legal advice to lots of people. I have some some thoughts and conclusions about it, but I think we're I think we're premature to be reporting back about it. But I think yes. we need to discuss it but with everybody before just we do. Letting people know in the two minutes that we had left that we're going to be coming back with a report once we've forensically dissected whether this was a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, well, it's more than just that. I mean, there's other things that I've learned from it that yes. I think are useful. Yeah. Well, well, we'll hash it out on a future episode of the Driving Law Podcast. It won't be next week, but it will be sometime in the future. So make sure you tune in every week, every Friday, a new episode of Driving Law. And if you need to reach me or Paul or any driving lawyer, you can call us at Acumen Law, 604-685-8889, or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Thank <laughs> you.